Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Jordan Valley Church. And if I haven't met you yet, my name is John, one of the pastors here. Glad to have you uh, worshiping with us on this Sunday morning. And I invite you to turn to our scripture passage for today. Uh, we're looking at Luke chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 22 through 52. Luke 2, 22 through 52. Starting in verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem named, called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. When they began looking for him among their relatives and friends, then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. 
Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would uh, speak to us today, Lord. We ask that you would take your living word and would you use it to make us new creatures in Christ Jesus. Would you build us up in Christ? Would you strip away our old um, man, our sinful nature, and mold us so that we would live and be more like Christ? And only you can do this, and we pray that you would through the power of your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, how many of you have heard of uh, ChatGPT, the AI platform that's kind of taken the world by storm? Yeah, probably everybody. Anyone not heard of it? A couple of people. Okay, here we go. All the Luddites. <laughs> yeah, well, if you haven't checked it out, you should uh, check it out. It's amazing. You can have a conversation with it and ask us it a question about almost anything. And it gives answers that are, you know, almost human sounding and in the way it is able to put things together. And it's really incredible all the different ways that people have found to use it. So I uh, heard of a story of a lady whose dog had uh, been bitten by a tick and and gotten this tick-borne disease. And she took her dog to the vet and they tried a few things and the dog got better, but then it suddenly got worse and they couldn't figure out what to do and the vet didn't have any solutions. And so she took all of the lab results from these dogs medical uh, you know, labs, pasted them into chat GPT, explained all of the different conditions and you know, things this dog was experiencing, and then it returned a couple diff- different diagnoses. And one of them seemed spot on. And so she took that um, particular thing and brought it to a new vet and said, hey, could you test for this? And sure enough, ChatGPT had figured out what was wrong with the dog better than the veterinarian was. Uh, People use it for all kinds of things, whether it is help with brainstorming or writing blog posts or writing your term papers or writing sermons. I've had a lot more free time lately. Uh, just kidding, I, I have not used ChatGPT to write any of my sermons, but I have asked ChatGPT to write a sermon about the same passage I preached on and see what it comes up with. And actually, it's got interesting results. Some of them, uh, some of them are actually pretty good. But whatever your thoughts are on it, everybody agrees that it will cause a great disruption in the world. Right? Just as cheap production in China caused the closing of many factories and factory jobs here in the United States, uh, people are predicting that there could be a similar effect where now knowledge workers, uh, whether you're a software developer or a writer or a researcher, your job could be replaced by AI. Or maybe AI will likely become a set of office tools like Microsoft Office. And if you want to get hired or if you want to keep your job, you need to know how to use AI to make yourself even more efficient. Whatever happens, it will cause a huge disruption. And this year will probably be seen by many as that pivot point in the unleashing of this new era. And disruption is a similar theme that we see in our passage today. Jesus brings a disruption to all of human history that will make ChatGPT look like a speed bump in comparison. We're working through this series uh, through the book of Luke called 
the king has come. And it's called that because Luke presents his gospel as the story of a arrival of a king into his kingdom. And it's not just the coronation of the king of England or of any nation, but it is the coronation of the king of all creation. And that does change everything. And the question I want you to ask yourself this morning is, has Jesus disrupted your own life? Has Jesus disrupted your own life? And we're going to look at this in three ways. First, one man, and then second, who will disrupt the status quo, and then third, for a greater purpose. So first, one man. Uh, Last week, we saw how Jesus' birth was incredibly ordinary. And we see that same trajectory here, where over and over in our passage, it talks about Mary and Joseph raising Jesus just in the typical customs of the Jews. He was There was nothing special about his childhood. He was being raised like any other child would. And so 40 days after the birth of a male child, the parents would go to the temple to present that child uh, to God and offer a sacrifice for the purification of the mother. And at the end of verse 24, Luke quotes from Leviticus 12, where it says, they brought a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, if you turn back to Luke, or sorry, Leviticus 12, you'll see that the normal sacrifice that a parent or a mother would bring was a lamb. But then in Leviticus 12:8, it says, if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons. And so what we learn of Jesus' parents is they're like many first-time parents. Money is tight. They can't afford the lamb. They've got to go for the smaller offering, two pigeons. They're struggling to make ends meet. And so then they arrive in the temple to present these sacrifices, and they run into a man named Simeon. And Simeon is, is an old man, close to his death, and yet he had been waiting his entire life for the arrival of the Messiah. And God, in his grace, he knew Simeon's heart. He, he told him that you will not die before you see this Messiah. Now, in the first few chapters of Luke, we see a whole lot of supernatural activity, whether it's angels appearing or prophets speaking or the Spirit moving in certain ways. And it's appropriate to ask, I think some people wonder, well, why if I see all of this supernatural activity in the Bible, do I not see supernatural things happening today, right? Where are all the angels or where is the prophecy or this thing or that thing? But actually supernatural activity is not all that common in the Bible. In fact, if you were to make a graph from Genesis all the way to Revelation of supernatural activity in the Bible, most of the time that graph would be down near zero, and there'd be a few places where there's these huge spikes of activity. And those spikes, if you turn to them in your Bibles, you would discover those are places often where God is at work in redeeming his people. That supernatural activity is closely tied to redemption. So whether that's in the book of Exodus with all the plagues and these miraculous signs to the coming of Jesus and his life and his redemption of the world. But most of scripture, and also I think the Christian's life, 
is not marked by supernatural experiences going from one high to another or one crazy thing to another, but what we would call a long obedience in the same direction of trusting in God's promises even though you don't see something supernatural happening. And so this day, Simeon is moved by the Spirit to go into the temple, and it just so happens to be the very day that Mary and Joseph arrive from their long travel into Jerusalem, and they are in the temple. And Simeon is looking around. There would have been a, a lot of people there, and, and he's looking for the Messiah. And maybe you would have looked for someone who is royal-looking or, or a family that is well-off, and yet he doesn't look for any of those things, but somehow he knows that this child, whose parents couldn't even afford the normal sacrifice, this child is the Messiah. And he praises God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. There's something amazing when, if you've had this experience, when your child meets your grandfather or your grandmother. There is a sense of completeness where the generations touch. And conversely, there's a sadness in knowing that your children will never meet their great-grandmother or maybe even never meet their grandfather or grandmother because of a life cut short. There's something wonderful about seeing life kind of perpetuated down through the generations. And Simeon experiences something similar here, but not for his grandchild, But for this child that had been promised for centuries, he's now holding in his arms. And you can picture the scene, his gnarled hands reach out to grasp this eight-pound baby, and he wraps his frail arms around him, maybe shaking a little bit because he's so much weaker than he used to be. And he looks into those eyes of that baby whose eyes are still getting their color And he says, this child is the salvation of Israel. I can now leave in peace. And it's amazing because this child looks completely ordinary. Before this child can do anything that would show he's special, long before he can even crawl, he's still learning to hold his head up right now. Simeon looks at him and says, this is enough to see this baby. Long before any of us had any idea of chat GPT, there were some that had played with earlier versions of it. And and it was good enough back then that they realized once this is unleashed, it will change everything. And here in this temple, full of the hustle and bustle of people coming in to bring their sacrifices, the rich and the poor, and everybody in between, young and old, Simeon looks through all of that and knows by God's Spirit, this child from a poor family that would be so easy to overlook, this child is the one who's going to disrupt everything. Now, Simeon didn't know this because there was anything special about him. Right? It's not like he saw him when he was nine years old out playing on the field and say, wow, that kid's got talent. He's going to go somewhere. No, Jesus couldn't even hold up his own head. Well, how did he know? How could he be satisfied with just seeing this helpless little baby? It's because he trusted in God's promises that God would make true what he had promised. And this child might not look like a likely candidate to disrupt everything, but Simeon's faith 
wasn't rooted in his assessment of that child's build or how his muscles had developed so far or what trajectory he was on. But his promises were rooted, or his faith was rooted in those promises of God. And that's what allowed him to look at that child and say, I know this child will change everything. And what are those promises that Simon is resting on? Well, let's go back for a, a second. This is a good reminder for us. Right? Because we often think, oh, if God would just do this thing for me, or give me this sign, or do this or do that, then I could believe. Right? Then I could be more hopeful. We don't trust God's promises. Instead, we want to see with our own eyes. We don't want to rest in just seeing an eight-pound little baby, but we want to see that baby grow up when he's 21 years old and when he's looking to sign for a college to play for them, and we see how strong he is, how talented he is. You know, he's going to go far. And then we can feel better about things once we've seen it with our own eyes. Right? We want to see the child when he's a professional in the ninth inning and winning, and then we can relax. Okay, this child is going to take care of everything for us. But Simeon holds his eight-pound baby, and he says, now I can depart in peace, even though I have no idea how this is going to work out. And how can he do that? He's resting in the promises of God. At verse 25, he's waiting for the, for the consolation of Israel. What does that mean? He's, he knows that God had promised that there would come someone who would wipe away the tears of Israel. And he sees it in this baby. Verse 32, he says that this child will be a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for the people of Israel. And he rests on that promise. And he knows that this child will bring that. Are you resting then in those promises about who Jesus is and what he will do and how he will make all things right and how he will wipe away every tear and how he will heal all of your diseases? Or are you trying to look at this little baby and figure out for yourself whether or not you think you can trust in him? God's promises are the most sure thing we have. Do you have a living hope? A hope that is there when even all you can see is a little eight-pound baby. Now you say, though, it's hard to have a living hope when our world is crazy. Every day I hear more bad news. Every day I worry about what the economy is going to do or what's going to happen in the world or what's happening amongst the wars. You say, I'm discouraged because hate is strong and it mocks that song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I don't have any reason to hope. But what reasons did Simeon have to hope? All he had before him was this poor family, a four-week-old baby, unable to hold up its own head. See, his reasons for hope are the same reasons that you and I have for hope, the unbreakable promises of God. And those promises will still be standing just as strong and just as shiny even after everything else in our world has faded into dust. They will be shown to be the lasting things. Well, let's move on to our second point, this one man, one child who will disrupt the status quo. Simeon then turns to Mary and says to her in verse 34, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then he says to Mary, 
a sword will pierce your own soul too. This child is going to disrupt the status quo in Israel. And just like with any disruption, it's going to kind of reshuffle the deck on who are seen to be winners and losers. That those people who are at their peak, Jesus will come and they will be brought low. Those people who are in the dust, Jesus will bring them up. Like any disruption, right? Blockbuster was once the coolest place to be on a Friday night. And then Netflix came. And what does this disruption that Jesus is bringing look like? Well, he speaks it in the Sermon on the Mount on, in Matthew 5. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing what is right, for they will be called children of God. This is that great disruption, right? That the world, that the narrative of, of our world says, you need to have more, right? You need to be happy all the time. You need to have this and that. You need to treat yourself. You need to do this. You need to be proud about yourself. And Jesus says, those things might make you feel like you're on the mountain for a moment, but it will come crumbling down, and I will lift up those that the world has overlooked. So which side of this great disruption will you be on? Flying high like Blockbuster, only to be turned into a relic of history? Or pursuing that long path of obedience to Jesus, even though sometimes it doesn't look like it's going anywhere, but realize that that is the path that will lead to eternal glory? Do you realize that you're poor and you need Jesus? Or are you trying your best to make your best life here now without him? Are you humble in spirit? Or are you always keeping track of all the things that you've accomplished? Maybe even things you've accomplished for God. Are you suffering for doing what is right? Or every time there's a conflict, do you back away and and just try to smooth things over? Do people spread lies about you because you're following Jesus? And when that happens, does it ruin your day and you think, woe is me? Or do you rejoice knowing that the heavenly reward is far greater than this present pain? Jesus is flipping the tables on how our world operates and what this world says is important. What this world says, you need this to be happy. You need this to be satisfied. And Jesus says, it might last for a moment, but it will be dust in eternity. When you zoom out and see all of history, where will you be? Like a blockbuster store? Because you bought in to what everyone says you need in this moment, in this life. Or will you be reveling in the eternal glory of God? Because though from the perspective of everybody else, you are putting your hope in this helpless eight-pound little child, but you know that that child would bring giants down. 
And Simeon hands the child back to Mary. And as soon as he does that, this other prophet, this woman named Anna, shows up. And she too is old. And she was married for seven years, and then her husband unexpectedly died. And instead of remarrying, she dedicates her life to God. She spends her life worshiping and fasting and praying, and now she's 84 years old, which we don't know how old she was when she was married, but based on when people generally got married back then, that meant she spent at least 50, 60 years of her life dedicated to worshiping God in the temple. And she comes up to Mary and Joseph, and she praises God. She starts a a bit of a disruption in the temple. Anyone who is walking by, she says, look, look, this is the Messiah. This is the one who will redeem Jerusalem. And I think it's significant that here at the beginning of Jesus' life, we have two people show up, an old man and an old woman, one filled with the Spirit, both prophets. And I think Luke is showing us that Jesus' ministry is going to be a fulfillment of that promise back in Joel 2.28, where God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Jesus is upending the status quo. He's upending the temple worship here. As we speak, these sacrifices were the center of attention in the temple. It's why people came, and yet there's growing this disturbance as people gather around, and Anna is telling people, look, here is Jesus. Here is the Messiah. And this brings us then to our third point, for a greater purpose. Mary and Joseph make that long journey home, We're given just this very simple yet profound statement in verse 40. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. And notice it said Jesus became strong. It's not like Jesus uh, came out of the womb looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger. No, he was a a normal baby. He had to have his head held up. He didn't have to pretend to be a child. He was truly a child. He was truly human. As one commentator wrote, this verse tells us that the intellectual, moral, and spiritual growth of Jesus as a child was just as real as his physical growth. He was completely subject to the ordinary laws of physical and intellectual development, except there was nothing of the influence of sin. And probably many of us uh, like me, have wondered, well, what was Jesus like as a child, right? What would it have been like to play with? What, what did he look like? What did he like to do? And what, what did he do when his brothers and sisters annoyed him? And, but the only story that we have is this one story when he's 12 years old, and it's when they went back to Jerusalem, and as was the custom, they went to celebrate the Passover. And a lot of people poured into Jerusalem for the Passover. And so when it was over, it it would kind of be like trying to leave the parking garage after the game is done, right? And just masses of people all trying to get out at the same time. And so there were all these crowds of people headed out from Jerusalem, and they would kind of walk in packs, right, as they walk with other people from their hometown. And, And then Mary and Joseph head back with everybody else except they leave Jesus. <laughs> and it's led us to wonder, well, how did they leave Jesus behind, right? I mean, if, if you have six kids, that's going to happen a few times. But now maybe Jesus' younger siblings had been born, so he was the oldest. They had some younger kids they were focused on, and they just forgot about him. 
Some have speculated that possibly uh, they, the women could have all traveled together at the front of the pack with the young kids, and behind them there would be the men and the older kids coming, and Jesus was at that age where he, maybe he would have been traveling up front with his mom or in the back with his dad. And both parents think, oh, well, he's with the other one until they get to where they're going to stop for the night. And Mary and Joseph both look at each other and they say, I thought he was with you. And so then they start to freak out, right? If any of you have ever lost any of your kids, you know it's a little bit stressful. But imagine if you didn't just lose your kid, but you lost the child who's going to be the savior of the world. (laughs) Mary and Joseph, you had one job. Don't lose Jesus. And so it's late. They can't travel at night. They wait the next morning and they retrace their steps back to Jerusalem. And there they get to the temple and they see Jesus hanging out like he's at home, talking with the teachers. And everyone is amazed by the questions he's asking and the insight he has to things. And Mary runs up to him and says, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus answers, Why were you searching for me? (laughs) Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And these are the very first words we have of Jesus. In all the Gospels, of any of the recorded histories, these are the very first words that we know Jesus spoke. And I think this gets at why Luke shares this story. Not to cast doubt on Mary and Joseph's parenting skills, or to make us feel better when we lose our kids, and well, at least it wasn't Jesus, but to show us something of who Jesus is. That part of his growing up was a growing realization of why he came to this world. That he wasn't there just to be Mary and Joseph's child, but he had a greater purpose. And you can kind of picture the scene where he's walking to Jerusalem with leaving what he thought was home in Nazareth with his parents. And yet something about when he gets to that temple and he experiences something of the worship there, he realizes this temple is my home, and I have another father in heaven, and I came to do his work. And I think in that moment, we also get a clue to those earlier words that Simeon spoke to Mary, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, Mary and Joseph didn't understand these things when they first heard him, but we have that line at the end of our passage, Mary treasured all these things up in her heart, right? She's collecting all these little puzzle pieces that one day she'll understand it. And what will she understand? That this child that she loves, right? Seems like there's always a special relationship between a mother and her son. But she starts to realize that this child of mine, that not that long ago I held in my arms as he nursed from my chest, This child isn't mine. That he came to do something a lot bigger and a lot harder, something that I would never want him to do. This child is going to bring a great disruption into the world, but he can't do it without also bringing great pain to his mother and a suffering that she's not going to realize how hard it is until she watches her son die an excruciating death on the cross. 
And that pain will bridge that space from Jesus up there to Mary watching her son, and it will strike her soul in a way that probably only a mother can know. Because she'll remember it wasn't that long ago when I held my little boy. And now she's watching her son's life drain in front of her eyes. And yet, in that moment of her deepest pain, when the sword has pierced her own soul, that moment is also the very moment of the world's salvation. When Mary's heart is breaking as she sees her son's body broken, the great disruption is that that moment that looked like loss, that crushed Mary like a boulder on top of her, was actually the moment when Jesus broke the power of evil that casts its shadow over our world. This is why Martin Luther, the reformer, says, the cross of Christ has to be something like eyeglasses through which you understand the rest of the world. Because from the rest of the world's perspective, the cross was losing. The cross was the end. The cross was shame. But Jesus disrupted that all and said, that is the path to glory. Martin Luther wrote, He who does not know Christ does not know God hidden in suffering. And therefore, that person prefers works to suffering, glow to the cross, strength to weakness, wisdom to folly. These are the people the Apostle Paul calls enemies of the cross of Christ, for they hate the cross and suffering, and they love works and the glory of works. See, what are the eyeglasses through which you understand the rest of this world? Is it the same eyeglasses that everyone else is looking at and saying, this is what you need, this is what you should do? Or is it the eyeglasses of the cross that upends everything and says, what looks like weakness is actually strength. What looks like being poor is actually being rich. What looks like suffering is actually the path to glory. Or are you living according to what the world says? Every disruption brings new winners and losers. And the people who are at the top in the moment, they never realize they're about to careen off a cliff. And where will you be when Christ returns? What will you have put your hope in? What will you have put your trust in? What will you have lived for? And how much of those things that you pour your life into now that you think are so important will be in the end just like another blockbuster video? Or will your pursuit here and now, of mercy and humility and love and long-suffering and justice in whatever places God has placed you, your pursuit of those things for the kingdom will be revealed to be something much more glorious than all the riches of the world. What is it you're living for? Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to live for you to see how you have upended everything and how you have flipped the tables on the world. And yet, Father, I confess, we confess every single day as we see our neighbors, as we see our coworkers, as we are bombarded by advertisements or stories or whatever it might be, we are pulled into that direction to think we need more stuff here. I want this now. 
And Father, give us eyes to see, correct our vision, so that we could see into the distance and that heavenly glory that awaits your people, and we would know what truly lasts. And Father, we pray that you would do this in the name of Christ. Amen.